Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Dale Brentliff, geologist, speaking on behalf of Orex Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as REX and the U.S. as ORMNF. Orex Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive portfolio of large gold, silver, and copper exploration projects on renowned mineral trends in Mexico, including the Caneto San Luis del Cordero and Sandra Escobar projects, as well as in Canada with the Jumping Josephine Gold Project. Each project has impressive merits of its own. Packaged together, the chance of Oryx making the next big resource discovery increases dramatically. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. Mr. Britliff joins me today in the company's offices in Vancouver, Canada. Dale, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, very nice to be here. Thanks. Now, if you don't mind, tell us about the company. Oryx Minerals has been around for a few years now. We've been very active in Durango and more recently property in Sinaloa as well. Now we're back to Durango with three project focus and we're very excited to be in this prolific silver area, Mexico. This is a really nice jurisdiction actually and a very prolific area. What's your most exciting point that you can say about project in general? Well, many people will be aware of the Sandra Escobar project that we had a lot of success in uh, 2016. We had a bit of a stumbling block there when we came up against some challenging metallurgy. That notwithstanding, the project itself is very exciting. There's a very exciting mineral trend on it. And uh, just recently, we've announced a a three-way deal with Pan American Silver, by which we have a three-way JV that we are going to invigorate that project. We believe that we have something of an analogous system to La Pitaria, which is located about 40 k's to the east of us. What we were drilling on the Bolero deposit was a low temperature, low energy distal uh, manifestation of a larger system. Pan American Silver seemed to agree with us and Canisil are along for the ride as well. We're going to form a three-way JV in which we form a technical committee. Pan American is going to be funding us for the first year or two and we are going to go searching for the rest of the mineralized system at Sandra Escobar. And you said Fresneo is involved as well, correct? Fresneo is involved in the Corneto project, which is another Durango project of Oryx. It is a 4555 JV with Fresneo holding the majority share. They earned in over a period of three years. They spent over $6 million in exploration there. We announced some results last year, but at the moment we're still planning up the next phase of work. And tell us about the management team, if you don't mind. Oryx Minerals is one of the Bell Cara Group companies. We share much of the senior management with some of the other companies in the group. Ben Whiting, many people will know him. He's a very accomplished geologist, especially experienced in Mexico, but all over the world. Art Fries is a director of Oryx, as he is with the other companies as well. Again, he's a very accomplished geologist with more than 40 years experience. Uh, myself, I've been around in the exploration industry in Australia and in Canada since 1997. And uh, we also have another senior geologist, Rob Van Egmont, who is now uh, the senior geologist for Dolly Varden Silver, which is another of the Belcara Group companies. And of course, this group has had a lot of success in the past, specifically with Orco Silver. Yes, the uh, La Preciosa project is a great story. It 
was one that we are trying to emulate again with our other companies here. They took a, an early stage project, a silver project in Durango in 2005 and started to drill. One of the key discoveries there was that not only were there steep, steep dipping uh, silver bearing veins, there was also a very large thick vein that was a low angle that held a lot of silver. They ended up selling the company to Core Mining in 2013. That was a very, very successful transaction. And it's one that many of our shareholders experienced that. They lived through that and they want to see us do it again. Well, Dale, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Dale Brentliff of Orex Minerals, trading as REX on the TSX Venture Exchange and ORMNF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corp is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital raising ability. Today we join Mr. Anderson from our studios in Vancouver, British Columbia. John, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ellis. Thanks for having us again. What can you tell us about what's happening with Triumph in the Yukon? Well, we had a successful 2017 year. It was a project your listeners may remember. It was a, a project that was put together by a prospector and his wife years ago. And we found three significant deposits, 43101 deposits. They had a 2 million ounce gold deposit, another copper gold deposit that's another million ounces of gold, 6 million ounces of gold equivalent. They're low grade. We realized that, but it was something that we realized when we took it over two years ago. It was an ultimate call on gold and copper prices. So at $1,200 gold, it didn't make a lot of sense, but his gold was going to go through $1,500, $1,600. This company would be a lot more valuable and the asset obviously would be worth, we think, in the hundreds of millions. Well, what I find interesting, not only about what you just said, is the fact that some of the majors, four or five of them, have acquired properties and one has uh, actually acquired a junior over there. I had a conversation with Brent Bergeron with Gold Corp just a few years ago, two years ago, as a matter of fact, and they're quite interested in that area. I know that your property is sort of in the way of Gold Corp's uh, ambitions. That was the game changer. So 2017, was actually a remarkable change for this company. I just said earlier that we position this as the ultimate call on gold, but just up the road that still hasn't been built from where we are, Gold Corp purchased Kamenak for $520 million in uh, late 2016. And here we are at a little $20 million company with a resource that was somewhat similar to them, but not as, as de-risk with the uh, engineering studies. But to allude to the point that are we in the way of that? We are right along a geological trend, the Big Creek Fault, but we have all the infrastructure that we need to deploy a mine on one day. We've got a road, a government-maintained road access from the Klondike Highway to our property, right through our property, and our actually our boundary ends right at the end of that road. And essentially, no matter what happens with any of the majors, that's your plan, isn't it, to build a mine? 
right now at today's commodity price, the the project wouldn't make sense. But it, again, as as we get through fourteen hundred dollar and fifteen hundred dollar, this will be a mammoth mine, and and that's the way we're gonna drive forward. Tell us about the shareholder base. It's pretty solid, from what I understand. And I'm a shareholder, by the way. I should disclose that. Great, thank you. Yes, we have fantastic shareholders. And, and when I said 2017 was a, a game-changing year for the company, instead of just being a call on gold, we got a part of that was Gold Corp came to us last March and invested $6.5 million for 20% of the company. So it's not just an area play. They see our technical team. They see our resources. They also see the exploration potential. So we have Gold Corp in for 20%. We got Palisades Capital. They've been there for two and a half years and continue to buy. They've got 17%. Got Gold 2000 out of Zurich and some other smaller funds that have three, four percent position. So realistically, we've got about 60 to 70 percent in institutional long hands. And then ourselves management, we have about 10 percent. You mentioned that roads hadn't necessarily been built yet in the area, but I know that the Canadian government, the federal government here, gifted the province, if you will, the territory with a significant amount of money to improve the infrastructure there. Yes. Just September of last year, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came up and, and announced a $525 million infrastructure program for the Yukon, which was mainly road building. A lot of that is aimed through our area and areas of the north but one thing that separates area and the infrastructure is we've got that road now the first phase of that deployment is upgrading our road. The 30-kilometer road that goes right through our property as well as the 40-kilometer road that connects us to the Klondike Highway. So that's phase one. The next phase would be really continuing on from our property and building a brand new road up to where Western Copper and Gold Corp is. What are we going to see in 2018 specifically with regard to Triumph? We are going to see an extension of our exploration program. So rather than try to do engineering studies, we know we've got those three deposits. Last year, we did a, a modest program we did 13,000 meters. It was very cost effective, only spent $3 million. But we came up with four different discoveries, mainly confirmation of a, a very large porphyry system that's three kilometers long underneath and surrounding the, the current geological resource in one area of the property. So we're going to explore that porphyry more. We're also going to go to the, some of the higher grade areas of the property because the property really is endowed with a lot of scarns epithermal and plaster operation and a polymetallic deposit called the tinted deposit. So we want to go and test those high grade theories that would actually add to the grade and the size of the deposits and resources that we have. Let's talk about your team. We've got a, a very lean team right now. I know a lot of people like big management teams and big names. We have a very lean team. It's really led exploration wise by uh, Tony Bereshi. He's a 15 year PhD geologist. He's the one who came up with these ideas. We looked at hiring him independently to give us a, a view the property a year ago, came back so excited and came up with five ideas that we tested and we hit on four of them. And then Paul Reynolds, who is our president, he's done a fantastic job with community relations and really doing everything right. In fact, we have press release or bragged about, but we got a reclamation award, the Robert Lucky Award up in the Yukon for the great work we did. We received the Robert Lucky Award, which we didn't even know we were going to get. And that was for the reclamation work we did for uh, previous work on the property and how respectful we were for for the environment. So we're doing everything right on the board. We have a compliment of Gregory Sparks, who just joined us as a mining engineer, and Joe Campbell, who is the CEO of Terex. He understands this deposit really well working on in the past and very excited. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more people and others outside of just myself and Tony and Paul. 
Tell us about the structure of the company. Right now we have 62 million shares outstanding again. 60% of it is held within uh, six, seven people or groups, including Gold Corp. We do have some warrants and options that would bring in another $6 million. Average strike of those is around 18 cents. We're trying to maintain our dilution down to a, a very minimal amount. And John, on a scale of one to 10, how excited are you about the company and why? On that, I would say I'm a 12. And I'll be honest with you, I'm very bullish on the commodity. I'm very bullish on where gold's going. I think we've come through a really tough six years. You're starting to see other stocks react on discoveries. But we have really the ingredients for something that is more than just the 6 million ounces we have. We're one of the cheapest valued companies for the resource we have. We're in a geopolitical safe area. And we're in an area where the majors are starting to really wake up. We've got Gold Corp that has invested in our company and, and paid $520 million up the street. You've got Barrick who's showing up. You've got Anafagasto that's been sniffing around. You've got Newmont that took an equity position. And Coeur d'Alene Mines that's invested into a company that's about four kilometers away from us. Well, John, it's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us today in the program. Thank you very much for having us. And I look forward to giving you an update in another couple months. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BDG, Black Dragon Gold owns 100% of the Salave Gold Project in the Asturias region of Spain through its wholly owned subsidiary EMC. Salave is a technically robust project situated in a highly prospective region and recognized as one of the largest underdeveloped gold projects in Europe. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be here. If you wouldn't mind, please give us an overview of the company. Sure. Black Dragon Gold is a TSX-listed mineral exploration and development company, which owns 100% of the Salave Gold Project in northern Spain in the province of Asturias. Black Dragon has been around for a little while in other iterations, and the project was actually discovered in about 100 AD by the Roman Empire. The Romans mined about 3.5 million tonnes out of there, and I'd imagine that would have taken them about 100 years, given they had no automated mining equipment. And then it sat there until about 1971, when it was re-drilled again and more extensively drilled in the early 2000s, and being approached again as an open pit deposit. We've looked at it very differently. We think, in actual fact, this is a profitable underground mine and fundamentally that's on the basis that we see significantly high grade gold mineralization south of about 200 to 250 meters and we're going to be testing that a little bit more very soon. The company believes it has about a million ounces in the ground, potentially about a billion three US dollars sitting there. And the Romans only got so far with the technical ability they had back in their day. And of course, the Spanish themselves were responsible for so much gold mining, especially in the Americas. Why was this project left alone for so many centuries until 1971, and then only until recently with Black Dragon Gold? 
Well, I think it was initially looked at as an open pit. And of course, you know, the Romans mined out a significant quantity. It's very close to the coastline. And I think it was always going to be very difficult to economically extract this as an open pit because eventually you would have water ingress. The surface is about 40 metres above sea level. 40 metres is not a particularly deep pit. So it doesn't give you a lot of ability to continue mining some of the high grade material. And of course, when this was last properly evaluated was in the early 2000s when gold prices were $300 an ounce and now they're 1330 or thereabouts. So we've re-looked at it and said, well, look, the best way to approach this when you've got really sturdy, solid granites to mine through is to look at it as an underground mine. And what we now know is that there is some very, very high grade gold mineralisation at depth and that's where we really want to focus our efforts. Give us a picture of what that's going to look like over the next few years, Paul. Sure. Well, the beauty of the Salave deposit, and because there's been so much work done, particularly being between sort of 2004 and now, is that we actually don't need to do a lot more work to be able to put together a feasibility study and a mine plan and be able to present that to the government. A lot of that data already exists. The resource has been very well drilled. What we want to do, however, is better understand what's happening at what we call the sub-vertical feeder structures that are around sort of 250 to 300 metres below surface. And next week, we intend to commence a drilling campaign on that larger structure where we know historically there's been a number of intercepts that have exceeded sometimes 50 grams per tonne of coal. But what we really want to focus on is not just... It's great that the high-grade zones are there, but we want to understand the geometry of those zones. Is this the ultimate source of the deposit? And if it is, it really could open up the resource to being substantially larger and higher grade at depth. And we know that the deposit right now is open at depth. So that's where we're starting immediately. We've mobilised two rigs yesterday, and they will start turning in the next day or two. But once we've done that, we're going to obviously have a go back through all of the historical work and relook at our resource and see, you know, do we have more than the million ounces and is it slightly higher grade than what we had originally anticipated? And from there, we'll continue to sort of narrow the scope of the project. So we've already engaged with our primary regulators in Spain in the province of Asturias, which is the Department of Mines and the Department of Environment, and asked them to give us some feedback as to what they're expecting to see from us in our feasibility study and our ultimate development applications. And as we get more and more feedback and we continue those discussions with them, we'll narrow that down into a scoping study or what is known in Canada as a preliminary economic assessment. And we'll look at the economics and the viability of the project. At that point, we'll have a better understanding of all of the various components that we'll need to go out and get quotes for. And then we'll start a feasibility study that will then ultimately, we will be able to present to our regulators, to our local community, and say, look, this is actually how we're going to do things. I'd imagine that given the extent of the work that's been done historically, that we'll be able to start that feasibility study toward the end of this year, and I don't think it'll take us a particularly long time to complete it. I'm optimistic that we could be in a position to commence production in 2019. Will Black Dragon ultimately be the producer, or will you partner up? If this project required a billion dollars of upfront capital, I'd say, yeah, we definitely need to go and get a partner. This is a project that's got a relatively small footprint. We're looking at mining anywhere up to 1,000, 1,500 tonnes a day. 
that's not a particularly big mining operation. And of course, at the back end, all we want to do is produce a gold concentrate. That's a very simple flotation circuit that will be able to take those concentrates and ship them to a smelter who will ultimately pay us for what we deliver to them. What kind of mine life is that potentially? At the moment, we've got about a 10-year mine life. I would look to try and grow that through two ways. One, through the drilling that we're doing now. The other interesting thing about Salave is that the area where all of the historical drilling, and there's been nearly 65,000 metres of historical drilling there, has been focused, represents only 5% of our licence area. And we know from some geophysical work that's been undertaken, plus some rock chip sampling, that there's gold mineralisation in other areas of our licence area. So we'll also be working on some surface-based exploration where we'll take some soil samples and we'll do some sedimentary samples and some geochemistry. Overlay that with geophysics, primarily gravity surveys, and start identifying other priority drill targets where we think quite confidently that we'll be able to add to this resource and bring it up to something that's larger that would give us not only an extended mine life but may potentially enable us to increase the throughput rate as well. There's probably a large advantage in you producing gold concentrate in Spain so relatively close to the London market and I'd like to tie that into another question. How does an Australian running a company based in London with a project in Spain that trades on the Canadian TSX Venture Exchange, how did this come together? Yeah, well, look, when I was 15 years old, I was sent to a boarding school in the north of Scotland, renowned for installing discipline in, in wayward young gents. And I've basically been, you know, a resident of London and Europe since then. I've worked in commodities trading in London and eventually in investment banking, specialising in the resources sector. Black Dragon was historically listed on the TSX. It remains there. It eventually should probably migrate to London because that is obviously geographically more relevant to the London investor base. But as gold projects in Europe or any mining projects in Europe get very close to production, you often find that there's a huge amount of interest from the generalist funds in London to be able to get involved there. They can do that through the TSX or the ASX, but you tend to find a lot more will invest if it's a London-listed company. So TSX and ASX are great incubators for junior mining companies. They enable access to capital that allows us to get things done and do exploration and do pre-development work. But ultimately, when you go to build a project like this, London is a key financial market and that will never change. So it's easier potentially and possibly more lucrative to have such a project in Spain as opposed to Latin America or Africa or even Australia because of your proximity to a global financial center like London. Yeah, look, I think with all base and precious metals at the moment, we're seeing a, a real resurgence of mining in Europe. A lot of investors have sort of grown weary of the political difficulties in Africa and certain South American jurisdictions. And you only have to look into Central Europe at the moment and see this huge amount of activity that's going on in the mining industry. And Spain's not immune to that. Spain has got a huge amount of mining investment going in there at the moment. There's large copper mines, potash mines, lithium, coal, gold, other precious metals. So Spain is a pretty friendly mining jurisdiction. Whilst it has very strict rules about how you have to go about these things it is a jurisdiction where you can get things done i've been to spain recently and you really don't know unless you've been there how impressive the infrastructure is in that country it is amazing great highways bullet trains very modern from what i understand you're located in an area which is very conducive to getting the job done 
Oh, absolutely. We're within 100 kilometres of two major shipping ports. We have a six-lane motorway that is about a kilometre away from the project site. We've got fantastic infrastructure in terms of electricity and water. And of course, you've also got a very, very skilled workforce in Spain, guys who are experts in engineering and in geology. They've worked both in Spain and they've worked particularly in South America. And where we are in Asturias, of which the capital is Oviedo, the, the Oviedo School of Mines, is world-renowned for turning out some very, very accomplished geologists and engineers. Speaking of mining engineers, when you and I met in London at Mines and Money, I also met your general manager of your subsidiary in charge of the Salave project, Jose Dominguez. Quite an impressive individual with a mining pedigree in Spain. Yeah, he is. Jose has been a fantastic appointment for us. We identified him as a potential candidate in August and appointed him in October as the general manager of EMC, our subsidiary company, which owns the Salave deposit. Jose's background, he was the general manager for Rio Tinto operations in both Spain and Italy. He's a very accomplished mining engineer, again, from the Oviedo School of Mines. And he's an accomplished gentleman who's had a lot of time dealing with local communities, dealing with regulators, working very methodically through issues and explaining how things should be done and how they will be done and what the implications of those are. So Jose's primary responsibility for us is really engaging in government and community relations, but he's also overseeing all of our activities in country as well. The fact that we've got a drill permit so quickly to be able to start this drilling program next week, I think is a testament to the skills that Jose brings to the company. He's certainly been able to get those permits in place for us very quickly and I think he's going to be very successful in opening up that constructive dialogue that all mining companies have to have with their regulators. It's all about relationships at the local and provincial level, isn't it? Absolutely. For us, the primary jurisdiction is provincial, so it's in the provincial government in Asturias. There is some oversight from Madrid, but the fact that Jose has had a long history in Asturias, he knows many people who work in government and he knows many people in the local community, means that he's very well placed to just continually build and nurture those relationships, which we do need. You can't build a mine without a social licence, and the methodical approach that Jose takes in terms of his engagement and his discussions at a local and a provincial level have been very successful today. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. There's the potential for significant upside over the next few years. Yeah, I think Black Dragon as a listed company is probably not well known or very well understood. On an EV per pound basis for measured and indicated resources, we trade at the moment at about just under $10 an ounce, whereas our peer companies, according to BMO, are trading at about $75 an ounce. And I think as our level of activity increases and we start to make more announcements with respect to the work that we're doing and the achievements that we're making, we'll start to see that move up back up to reflect more of our peer companies. We're quite excited about what 2018 is going to bring for Black Dragon. Well, I look forward to continuing our conversation over the coming weeks, Paul. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no problem. I look forward to talking to you soon about our drilling program, how we're getting on and the results we're receiving. I've been speaking with Paul Cronin, the CEO and Managing Director of Black Dragon Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BDG. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. 
I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gary Cope, the president and director of Barcelli Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Barcelli is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive gold, silver, and copper exploration project on renowned mineral trends in Sweden. The management team of this company is widely recognized for the identification of La Preciosa Silver Gold Deposit in Durango, Mexico for Orco Silver. I joined Mr. Cope at the offices of the company in Vancouver, British Columbia. Gary, welcome to the program. Nice to be with you today. Nice to be with you too. I'm looking forward to participating. Tell us about the company, if you don't mind. It's quite exciting that you have a project in uh, northern Sweden. and Scandinavia, as I understand, has amazing infrastructure. It does. It's certainly one of the best places in the world to find a new mine. The reasons being uh, low power costs, abundance of electricity, abundance of water, a very quality labor force, and a very low taxation rate. And that low taxation rate is very important. How involved is the government there in your project or in mining in general? Uh, the government's very involved. As most of your listeners will know, Sweden's pretty environmentally conscious country. The government agencies are very involved. But you being Canadian-based, you've got your own set of rules that really regulate what you do globally. We do, and we try to be the best corporate citizen we can. And uh, we certainly have to follow Canadian standards. But the Swedish standards are very similar. Tell us about the company in general. Barcelay is a joint venture with Agnico Eagle, a very, very promising project in northern Sweden. Agnico is the operator, and we get to sit back and we're carried to pre-feasibility. The current ownership split is 55-45. So in other words, you don't have to raise money to bring anything forward? No, we are covered to pre-feasibility when that ownership split will change to 70-30. We think they're probably two years at least away from that pre-feasibility. So I see a smile on your face. This is obviously a very exciting company for you. Uh, tell us about your exuberance and why. Well, I mean, it's very easy. There's a lot of gold here. <laughs> Agnico drilled 60,000 meters last year and have added considerable ounces. Uh, can't talk too much about that because it's not out yet, but you're going to see a new resource here from us and Agnico in mid-February. We're very happy with the progress Agnico has made and looking forward to sitting back and watching them drill a lot more ounces. What our listeners should know, if they don't already know, is that this management team has had a lot of success in the past you know how to pick them, you know how to run them. I said that. Well, thank you very much. I mean, we had a great success with Orco Silver, selling it to Coor for $375 million. We started it from scratch and took it up to 270 million ounces of silver. So tell us about your shareholder base. What are we looking at as far as structure, etc.? Well, the company's got about $125 million outstanding. It's a very, very tightly held Shell, uh, there are some very major shareholders. Ingalls and Snyder hold about 50 million shares approximately. U.S. Global is an insider. They have about 10%. Management has a huge stake of 15 to 20%. So you add those together, you can see a lot of the shares of the 125 have been taken up. I would say it's probably 80 or 90% institutional to 10 or 20% retail. And of course, you have Fresno Mining involved. Yeah, Fresnillo still owns 4 million shares from when we spun Barclay out of Oryx Minerals. And you're trading currently at near 70 cents Canadian, which is about 60 or so U.S.? Yeah, I think today we're trading 75, I think, and it's starting to get a little more active. You know, the market's very tight. It's hard to buy a big block of shares without chasing it up too much, but, you know, that's a good thing for us. 
Now, you and I have attended these conferences here at, in Vancouver, the uh, Vancouver Resource Investment Conference and a few other events this week. I don't think I've ever seen this kind of excitement before in the 20 years I've been in the business. Yeah, it's been a long time. I will give you that. I hope this one's for real. Uh, it feels like it's for real. You know, we have gold going up. A lot of the major banks and prognosticators are starting to give pretty bullish views on gold and silver. So I hope this one's for real. If it is, we're going to enjoy it. Well, Gary, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to more conversations in the coming weeks and months. Thanks for joining us today in the program. Thank you, Alice. I've been speaking with Gary Cope, President and Director of Barcelli Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm speaking with Scott Urquhart, the VP of Corporate Development for Analytics Insight, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as ALY and in the U.S. as ATIXF. Analytics Insight is the developer of proprietary technology that algorithmically analyzes big data and distills it into actionable insights. Analytics Insight's flagship project, Capital Cube, is a software-as-a-service platform providing high-quality financial research and analysis for investors, financial portholes, and media. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for having me. If you don't mind, tell us about your company. Analytics Insights, a Canadian-based artificial intelligence machine learning company. It's been publicly traded for about four years, and we've been, during that time, building a platform, a machine learning platform, which transforms data into meaningful insights, and we have a special focus on the financial sector, actually. Explain, if you will, what you mean about artificial intelligence plugged into this type of technology. What does that mean? Do you have robots in there somewhere? <laughs> it's really computing power that analyzes big data. So we go after areas where we have a big data set where we can glean information from the data set. And our first attraction point was for the financials for publicly traded companies. So we cover 50,000 publicly traded companies on our platform. We pull in the financial data points from their CDAR or EGAR filings and manipulate that data to turn it into a narrative flow. So it's a cloud-based platform. It's capable of a lot of computing power. We compute uh, some 100 billion daily computation. And who are your clients? Clients, over the last while, we've spent a lot of time building our content partners, as we call them, which are stock exchanges, hedge funds, and the like. Also, we have individual investors that utilize our platform because you can get essentially research material on uh, publicly available companies that uh, allow an individual investor to read about a company and how it's performing without having to be financially literate. These predictive analytics, I imagine they're pretty reliable? We don't predict stock prices. So what we do is we give fundamental rating scores and we describe how a company is performing against its peer group. We do have the predictive analytics capabilities. We test for things like dividend cut or a dividend initiation within a company or its ability to be acquired amongst its peer group or to be the acquirer. Those type of uh, predictive analytics, we continue to improve that as we improve our machine learning language. So that's all done through artificial intelligence. You can almost predict which companies may be acquisition targets during a specific time period. That's correct, which is really helpful. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's the board of directors who, who make these decisions, but it's helpful information, even for internally to a company, to understand how they're performing amongst their peer group. Tell us about some of your content partners. 
publish uh, primarily on Yahoo Finance. So if you go to Yahoo Finance, look at any stock ticker, you'll see content created by us, and it's it's distributed as Capital Cube. So we publish around 3,000 articles a day on Yahoo Finance. We also supply content to the Wall Street Journal. We have content partnerships with uh, Euronext, the European Stock Exchange, as well as Thomson Reuters. And we just recently announced a content partnership with Africa Investor, which is focused on the African market. The African market, as in the continent, specific countries, do you assess risk in that region? We're purely financial analytics. So with that partnership, we're focusing on creating content. A lot of the companies that are publicly traded in Africa don't have as large a following from investment banking and research by the brokerage firms in North America. So what we can provide is robotically created information and research material on companies using the analysis on their financial statements. And it allows users to be better aware of the performance of companies throughout the world. And in this particular case with African investors, to focus on African publicly traded companies. Does this augment or eliminate the job of the financial advisor ultimately? We don't see it as eliminating. We see it as being complementary. And having worked in the industry in the past, there's a lot of effort to assemble the financial information, particularly if you're wanting to do peer group analysis. That's usually a task that uh, takes uh, quite a bit of work. We do that robotically. So we look at it as our tools can provide assistance to the stockbrokers or research analysts to help them concentrate more on their discussions with management, the fundamentals of the company uh, going forward, that sort of thing. So we take all of that labor-intensive work of doing financial analytics and we automate that. Now, MarketWall is also a subsidiary holding in the fintech space. Let's elaborate on that. Sure. MarketWall is a company that we started back in 2014, and it's now co-owned with Intesa Sampala, which is uh, the largest bank in Italy. That's a company that's focused on the fintech space, and what we are doing there is we have built a stock trading app and a mobile banking app that will be rolled out together with Intesa Sampala in the first half of this year. And our analytics insights ownership of MarcoWall today it stands at 49%. The Intesa Sampala and the employees of MarcoWall own the remainder. You've recently announced a blockchain initiative. Explain that initiative if you don't mind. Quickly on blockchain, blockchain being the technology on which cryptocurrencies are built. We're not in the cryptocurrency business, but uh, we are looking and have announced uh, blockchain initiatives. Our focus there is with regard to the way that stocks are traded and stocks are settled. So if you trade stocks, you, you recognize that it takes two or three days actually to settle the trade. That's because of the verification process that's required. If you do kind of a quick Google search, pretty much all of the stock exchanges have are at least piloting or trialing something to do with blockchain to look at ways to improve the transaction times and to reduce costs. The Australia Securities Exchange, for example, just in December announced that they're moving toward blockchain and they'll be announcing their plans formally to do that in, in March of this year. So our focus on blockchain is together with our partners and because we partner with content providers and stock exchanges, and specifically Intesa Sampala, the large bank in Italy. We're looking at blockchain initiatives that will be helpful in that industry, being able to use the distributor ledger technology to settle stock trades, provide that authentication as to who owns the securities, so that stocks can be traded with greater speed and lower costs. 
So we may not have to wait three days any longer to have access to some of those funds, although some of the online portals allow you to do that anyway. Yeah, that's right. If you look at the kind of the history of trading stocks, I mean, it used to be share certificates were stored in a cage, literally, and now they're mostly electronically traded. There's still a verification process that's required. Uh, we see blockchain as being a very uh, well disruptive technology in, in that area because blockchain by its nature identifies both the transmitting and receiving party and that's a transaction that's immediately agreed upon. So applying that technology then to trading stocks make them much faster and more efficient. Now there was an internet bubble in the late 90s and early 2000s but the internet did not go away. It's in every aspect of our lives now for the most part. As sort of an expert in the realm of cryptocurrency, blockchain, or what have you, is blockchain going to survive? Will there be some iteration of a global Bitcoin in the outcome? What can we expect to see when the dust settles, in your opinion? Do you expect things to crash and burn and come back again? I've been reading a new book. Uh, it's called The Internet of Money, which is uh, helpful in, in um, explaining some of this. If we think about the Internet as being the base level and, and blockchain being an enabling technology to transfer value across the internet. It, it provides a foundation for cryptocurrencies and whether Bitcoin will be the dominant or some of the others. There are hundreds of cryptocurrencies available now and there probably will continue to be. I don't know which one is going to remain dominant going forward, but I do believe that blockchain is, is certainly here to stay and blockchain will change the way in which transactions occur and it's already doing so. I think the most recent run-up in Bitcoin has created a rapid increase to the knowledge base. Uh, people are now much more familiar with blockchain as a technology because they're using it through Bitcoin or others. Blockchain technology is here to stay, and I, I think it'll change the way in which uh, we trade stocks. It'll change the way in which we transmit value, currency, money. It'll change the way that we bank, and it'll change the way that financials are recorded uh, within companies. And it'll take a few years for it to really develop to become mainstream, but the internet took a few years as well. So it's it's coming along. These are early days for blockchain, but we're going to be there for it. We think our machine learning platform tied together with blockchain being able to help and assist banks, brokerage firms, and those that are trading stocks, that formula becomes a meaningful formula for creating disruption and change, and uh, we're going to be there for it. Now, you recently announced a profitable quarter. Tell us about your overall revenue picture. We just recently announced our Q3 revenues. That's for the September quarter end of uh, close to 2 million Canadian in revenue. That gives us around 3 million for the nine-month period. We also, in that quarter, reported that uh, we became profitable. We have uh, recorded a net income of 300000 during that quarter. We're on the path of profitability. We're certainly well beyond a uh, concept play. We have real revenue from uh, companies and our partners, and we plan to see a lot of that, that grow a lot more going forward. Give us a snapshot of your background, Scott. Sure. I've been with Analytics Insight for the past two years. Previous to that, I was an investment banker and broker for Canadian brokerage firms. So that background has given me new thinking into how technology can be applied within that industry. And that's been my attraction to Analytics Insight and the platform that uh, we have developed. I like analyzing stocks. It's what I do. This is a, a wonderful platform for being able to do that. And I'm here to help build analytics. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. We have it's about 65 million shares outstanding right now. It's around close to 80 million shares fully diluted. And we're trading in around the 60 cents Canadian range. So that gives us a market cap of somewhere around $40 million. What can we look forward to in the next 12 months? You're going to 
see us do a lot more in the blockchain space. Uh, we announced our initiative in November. You'll see us uh, do a lot more work in that space. You'll see us add partnerships with content partners for our Capital Q platform. We'll put a specific focus on that going forward over the next 12 months on those two initiatives specifically. Scott, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much for joining me on the program. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I've been speaking with Scott Urquhart, the VP of Corporate Development for Analytics Insight, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange's ALY and in the U.S. as ATIXF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Steve Cope is the CEO and Director of Silver Viper Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange's VIPR. Silver Viper Minerals is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an exciting silver, gold, and base metal exploration project in Mexico, the Clemente Project. The company's directors and management include industry professionals with a consistent track record of identifying and advancing successful mineral exploration projects. The Clemente Project is located near the city of Caborca in the state of Sonora, Mexico. It's part of the Sonora Mojave Megashear, a 700-kilometer-long trend defined by medium to large orogenic gold and silver deposits. I joined Mr. Cope at the company's offices in Vancouver, British Columbia. Steve, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ellis. Thank you. If you don't mind, give us an overview of the company. It looks very exciting to me. Well, Silver Viper is a company that went public in September. We did an IPO at 25 cents. We initially listed with the Clemente project, but we just added a, a brand new project, the La Virginia project, which is on the eastern side of Sonora in Mexico. It was a project that was in the MineFinders profile and got lost in the transaction between MineFinders and Pan American. And now we're excited to, that we've kind of consolidated the land there and are going to get back to exploring it. You have some wonderful neighbors in the area. Sonora State itself is a, a very great jurisdiction in Mexico and minerally very prolific. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Sonora, as far as the states in Mexico that have a large history of mining, I would put it number one <laughs> in Mexico, probably side by side with Durango, but we've got fantastic neighbors. In the case of the La Virginia project, it was supposed to be the lookalike for the Dolores mine that Pan American bought off of MineFinders, and that's 75 kilometers south of that deposit. So give us a picture, if you don't mind, of what the next 12 months could look like for Silver Viper. Uh, the next 12 months are going to be very busy. We're going to be running a very aggressive program at the Lava Virginia project. We'll initially target a 5,000 meter phase one, but I would expect that to grow, be much larger based on success by the end of the year. And of course, this is a successful management team. You've had some uh, glory in the past and, and we hope as potential shareholders and shareholders to, to see that again. Absolutely. I mean, this is the fourth company now within the Belcara group. It's the same team that sold Orco Silver to Coor Mining for $375 million in 2012. Now, this is our newest one, but we've also got Dolly Varden Silver, Oryx Minerals, and Barcelli Minerals within our group. We've got an excellent group of geologists within our corporation that I would put up against any other junior out there. Lots of experience, and this is the next story. Who are some of your major investors and shareholders in this company? We've been very fortunate with the past success of the group to keep some of our large institutional holders that followed us from story to story. In the case of this one, we've got Ingalls and Schneider, again, as well as U.S. Global, would be the primary two shareholders that have participated already to date. So is the plan of the company basically to build up the resource, define it over the next 12 months, two years perhaps, and then offers will be on the table? I'm saying that, not you. Is that what potentially could happen? I mean, that's certainly always the hope for our group. Our business model has always been to take an asset that's either 
never had a drill hole in it or something that we believe further drilling will add a lot of value to it and we only target projects that we think the major miners would be interested in so if two years from now or maybe even who knows it could happen sooner uh, we'd be very excited to have grown the value of the La Virginia project and have vended that off to a major. How are you capitalized right now to take care of all that you need to do? Currently have four and a half million in the bank. That certainly funds a phase one or phase two program, but we could possibly be looking at doing a financing if we decide to grow that program to be much larger. And tell us about your share structure. Currently have 42 million shares outstanding. No options and no warrants have been issued yet. It's very tightly say it's brand new. So we're excited to get going and, and we've got the share structure to allow us to create a lot of shareholder value. And what are you trading at right now? It is late January 2018. Doesn't trade a lot right now, but I believe our last trade was at 17 and a half. And tell us about your management team, if you don't mind. I'm the president and CEO. We've got Gary Cope as the chairman of the board. Dale Britliff is taking the role as VP of Exploration in this company. And then we've got Carla as our CFO. Well, Steve, I'm looking forward to continuing news as it develops in the near future. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program here in Vancouver. It was a pleasure, Ellis. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Steve Cope, CEO and director of Silver Viper Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange's VIPR. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back with you. Before we talk about 2018, let's review Pure Energy's milestones and accomplishments for 2017. 2017 was a, a great year for us, Alice. Pure Energy Minerals really transitioned itself, and as a team, we got a lot done. We delivered, of course, at mid-year preliminary economic assessment on the Clayton Valley project with a very favorable outlook on the net present value of the asset and the rate of return on that project if it goes forward. And that sets the stage for all those important discussions we're looking forward to with potential future customers. Now that we can talk about the updated resource, the potential economics of the project, and of course, the timeline to development. So that was probably the most significant thing we got done during the year. But I'm quite proud, too, that we've transitioned the team. We made changes at the board of directors level where we brought on board Scott Shellhaas, a former lithium executive and accomplished mining lawyer. And more of an advanced project kind of board is now in place with Scott's addition. And of course, I think the other thing that people will remember in this year is that we've put that jigsaw puzzle of Clayton Valley together. And by that, I mean all those 
disparate players in lithium brine trying to make a go of it in Clayton Valley. We've really consolidated those land positions into by far the biggest holder of mineral rights in Clayton Valley, Nevada, which is the only place in North America where lithium is being commercially produced right now. And, and it's pretty much pure energy minerals with about 26,000 acres and Albemarle's Silver Peak mine right next door to us. And, and that's really the important players in Clayton Valley right now. So we look back on the year getting a PEA out, transitioning the team, the board of directors level, figuring out that land position and getting all the land, like Robert Friedland used to say. So big accomplishments there. And then I don't want to forget the other changes when investors look at Pure Energy is they'll see an, a new vice president of projects and permitting. Walter Weinig came on board in April and a skilled professional project manager and, and is ably managing both projects for us now. And also, of course, Paul Zink, our very experienced new CFO, uh, has come on board and I've been trying to work with Paul for quite some time. And so that was another thing we got done in, in 2017 is, is get the management team ready for the next steps as well. And let's travel, if you will, to the Southern Hemisphere and your terracotta project in Argentina. You got me there, Ellis. I almost forgot we were so busy in 2017. The other thing we did is to add another major project. And as you know, I've worked in Argentina before and had some success there with Lithium One. And to return to Argentina, the Salta province, as a matter of fact, which we think is the best jurisdiction in Argentina, to go and pick up a very large property position on the Pasito Solar called our Terracotta Project, about 13,000 hectares there, and one of the larger land holdings in those solars in Argentina. And our option agreement will have us owning 100% of that project when we fully execute that. So that sets the stage, of course, for drill rigs turning for the very first time on the Terracotta Lithium Project in Argentina within the next month here, Ellis, right beginning of 2018. Word on the proverbial street is that there's a mandate by some of the automakers, such as Volkswagen and BMW, to produce electric vehicles en masse. Now, we know that the supply of lithium is just not there to meet this demand yet. Maybe it will be someday. And will the price come down with regard to lithium? What is your long-range thinking in this regard? To look forward on lithium prices and, and the supply-demand, Ellis, I like to actually look backwards a little bit. We entered the business in 2009 when we put Lithium One together. And even at that time, we could see the incumbent producers just weren't stepping up to the plate to build that new capacity and get ready for the new demand that was coming. So since we sold Lithium One in 2012, today we see about a quadrupling of the price for battery-grade lithium carbonate from that period in time. And that's because these incumbent producers are specialty chemical companies. They're not thinking about their resources and reserves in the same way that a mining company does. And as such, they got caught on their heels. And we have seen a pronounced run-up in lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide prices for EV batteries. And that continues. To look forward, we commissioned a study from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, an independent study to look at the lithium hydroxide pricing. I, I agree with their prognosis. We will see fairly high prices sustained over the next sort of eight to 10 years, um, some volatility in there, but perhaps relative stability at these sort of high prices. And the reason for that is only a couple of the battery factories have yet been built, these new ones that are coming. 
And a couple of small new mines have come on board, thanks to junior companies, as a matter of fact. And because of that, we sort of have some stability here, but they predict the highest lithium prices will occur in the mid-2020s, maybe between 2025 and 2027. In that period of time, of course, the battery factories will have come on board, and a number of these mines and projected projects coming online will be slow to do so, as the mining industry takes a while to get through that permitting process and getting these projects financed. So I really agree with that. I see some pretty high sustained prices, some volatility to be sure, but then a run-up to a higher level probably in association with those big battery factories, the Gigafactory, those in China, Korea, and Japan coming online, Europe as well. The mines will be a little slower to do so, and we expect more tension. Now beyond that, if we look out at a potential 20-year mine life in Clayton Valley, benchmark uh, forecast, and, and we can certainly envision a return to some normalcy, and maybe by 2030, or so, we see enough new mines have come online and there's some equilibrium in the market and prices get back down to what might constitute normal, but maybe a bit lower from where they are today. That large land package in Clayton Valley, Nevada, 26,000 acres, what are you going to be doing to bring it closer to production in 2018? We're really excited about 2018 because it's a pivotal year in the project. We will have a drill returning to the valley here in the first quarter where we will be testing those newly acquired properties north of the main resource area. I'm referring to the claims we recently acquired from Advantage Lithium, on which Advantage had drilled some great holes, averaging over 200 milligrams per liter, higher grade than the average grade of our resource. So we'll put a drill rig in there, firm up those discoveries, and block that out in three dimensions and book that into a resource category quite soon. Also, to the north of that even, kilometers away from the main resource area, we have the properties we acquired from Lithium X. As we reported recently, the geophysics there suggests there's some conductive material beneath that northeast part of the property position. That's never been drilled in that part of the property. Even though to the west, Lithium X did drill one hole that, that encountered some lithium brine, we think the target gets a little bit more attractive over to the east from there. So drilling will be first order of business in the first quarter continuing through the rest of the year. But as uh, most people know who've been looking at our news flow, we're doing a lot of work on a pilot plan to demonstrate this new Tenova technology for recovering lithium without evaporation ponds. And we've been doing a lot of engineering work on that. We have a big meeting with our engineers in February on that for some of the final design parameters and, and budgeting on that. So by mid-year, we expect to be at final detailed engineering and moving into securing permits so we can build that pilot plant and be in construction later in 2018. So there, we can show the technology on full display, operating continuously, making battery-grade lithium hydroxide, and really firming up the confidence that this can be done better, faster, and greener than it's ever been done before, recovering lithium without evaporation ponds. Many people forget or should be reminded that you're a green company, basically. We've talked before, Ellis, about these companies that will be hopefully buying our lithium. These are some of the most innovative companies in the world, whether they be battery makers who are breaking through with better energy densities and better performance in their batteries, or original equipment manufacturers who are making cutting-edge new EVs. And to look these companies in the eye and say, let us go make you some lithium from 50-year-old technology, it just didn't seem right to us. And when we look at the potential recovery benefits, as we reported in our PEA, 
of the Tenova technology, pretty much doubling what's done today. The, the very best evaporation mines in the world today approach 50% lithium recovery uh, from that brine. And with the Tenova technology, our pilot plan indicated recoveries of over 90%. So the prospects are there to double recovery and to do so at a low cost of production. The PEA estimates $3,200 per ton of battery-grade lithium hydroxide. So competitive costs, more sustainable, higher recoveries, and a better footprint on planet Earth. And uh, that just fits well with the supply chain to this new industry of electric vehicles and the, and the implications, of course, for more sustainable ways of making energy going forward. You are publicly traded there's potentially a real opportunity for new investors with Pure Energy Minerals. Definitely. The future of lithium production, Ellis, does offer a lot of opportunities, and we think Pure Energy differentiates itself by adopting some of these new technologies and looking at better ways to do things. And, of course, being a junior company, we trade in the cycles that we see in the, in the junior mining industry. You and I have talked about that. And we've adhered to a strategy at Pure Energy, which is not to shy away from the hard work of something like building a pilot plan, for instance. And we see that, of course, in the media. Some companies kind of avoid putting out flow sheets on their new technology. They talk about a new technology, but they don't really put it out there. They, they haven't published PEA. They haven't published flow sheets. And we're trying to differentiate ourselves by showing the potential investors and, and the mining community and our peers that you can do the real work. You can progress through these milestones. And there are cycles in this business and there are ups and downs. But we believe right now Pure Energy is very, very undervalued and has a lot of potential to grow from here. Patrick, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Happy New Year and thanks again for joining me today in the program. I've been visiting with Patrick Highsmith of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy Minerals trades as PEMIF in the U.S. and as PE on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm a shareholder of Pure Energy Minerals. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.